Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Momming today with Melinda Wenner-Moyer, the author of How to Raise Kids Who Aren't <clears throat> A-Holes. <laughs> From Tots to Teens. Melinda, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Lauren, for having me. I love this. You're using science-based strategies, aka strategies that work, to raise kind kids. Um, that's a challenge for, for a lot of moms <laughs> and dads out there. Yes, including me, by the way. <laughs> you know, I, I try all different things sometimes with my kids who are, well, I have a newborn, uh, three and almost six. And um, I'm not sure anything works. So so, so help me and, and many of the moms out there. Uh, let, let's start with getting your children to listen to you. Mm. Yes, that is very difficult. Um, and especially, I think when kids are like engaged in something else, you know, I find that's the hardest when they're on their screens or they're really deep into some project or they're playing with their friends. The last thing they want to do is listen to you, right? Um, so I think, uh, I think, so actually I wrote a newsletter. I write a parenting newsletter and I actually addressed this specific question because so many parents were coming to me saying like, why does it seem like my kids ignore me? They don't hear me, like what's going on? And I talked to some audiologists and some um, researchers who actually study like kids hearing and, and how kids brains work when they hear things. And the really fascinating thing I learned was kids really like their brains don't connect that well to, sometimes to their ears. And they so, their ear, like, so they need to go to the ear doctor. They literally can't hear us. Is that the reason? It's I hope like that's it, the reason. <laughs> no, it's not. So they're, yeah, it's complicated. It's their ears are actually working, but it's like, they're not sending the messages to their brain that they're hearing things. And so sometimes you actually really have to like touch them, have some other kind of sensory signal, like touch them, like get them to look in the eyes at you. Um, because the, the sounds just like, they don't communicate to the brain. And so they're not doing it. Cause I always thought like, oh, my kids are just doing this on purpose. They're ignoring me. They're like being little jerks. Actually, most kids really just like they don't know that you're talking to them even when you're saying their name over and over again. So it really helps to like have some other signal touching their shoulder or, you know, making sure too that you like turn off their screen or that they aren't being distracted by something like like a screen while you're trying to get their attention. Okay, let's talk about discipline because page 185 in your book, timeouts too have recently become a hot button topic with some parenting experts now arguing that timeouts can erode the parent-child relationship and even incite harmful brain changes. Look, a lot of families start the timeout, sit one minute at the, you know, at the kitchen table until you can rectify your behavior. Some parents say five minutes in your room, um, but timeouts are bad, ineffective. No, I no, I so <laughs> no, I do not think they are. When I dug into the research, because as a science journalist, the way I answer questions like this is I go and I look to see if there's research on something. And there's actually a lot of research on timeouts. And the research does not 
support the idea that they are dangerous. This is like an idea that has come out of the positive parenting movement, which for the most part, I actually agree with a lot of like positive parenting techniques, which means kind of like responding to misbehavior with, you know, uh, acknowledging feelings and then like trying to trying to talk to kids about why what they're doing is not okay and stuff. And a lot of that is really good advice, but the idea that you can't have consequences like timeouts, that they're dangerous, just is not supported by the research. If anything, research on timeouts shows that they really can work and they're effective and kids end up doing better in like all realms of life if they if they have, you know, boundaries that are um, that are maintained by the parents. Um, but timeouts, a lot of people, a lot of parents don't really know how to do them properly yeah um, i don't that was they don't work for me <laughs> because my kids just say well, no or they'll and they just won't go to wherever their timeout is or they go and they're really annoying while they're there if that makes sense yeah no i know exactly <laughs> what you mean by that and that's okay like so it is true that not every kid is going to benefit from timeouts i think that's another thing is you know discipline does kind of have to be tailored to the kid um and it's okay though for kids to be like screaming their heads off in a timeout. A lot of parents have this idea that, you know, your child has to be quiet for the full time they're in timeout or something, um, or that it has to be in a specific place. They have to go to a specific place. And that's, that's really not a requirement. Um, you know, the kids can be angry. They can be screaming during it, but still it's like, it's a, it's a way to sort of, um, in, in a way like timeout, what it refers to is time out from positive reinforcement. It's like a separation of, of you from them and from your attention. And it's basically like a time when you just shouldn't be giving them attention. That's really the most important thing. So they don't have to be in a specific place. They don't have to be quiet, but as long as you're really doing your best to not engage with them in that time, that is what, that is what's like fundamental to it, <sighs> but they're hard <laughs> and not every kid responds. Yeah. So to go back to positive parenting techniques that and and as you noted that's when you acknowledge your 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 child's feelings um just yesterday I got home from work and you know my kids were very calm which is shocking and um all of a sudden my daughter got really annoyed that I I touched one of her papers and you know just ruined her whole life so I just took a deep breath and I said I understand that you really wanted that paper there and I am so sorry that I moved it. I didn't mean to. It must be really frustrating that all your stuff is not where it's supposed to be. And I was kind of like kicking myself as I'm saying this because it's like, okay, what's the big deal? I just moved your paper. How dare you like yell at me? It, it Was my positive parenting technique, A, good, and B, does it get me anywhere or does it just create a kid that's constantly going to, you know, have her mother wrapped around her finger? So I think you handled that beautifully, actually. Um, and uh, let me first say, there's a difference between acknowledging kids' feelings and validating them, which is exactly what you did, and then letting them get away with however they want to manage those feelings. So it's okay, for instance, like, let's say your daughter not only got mad about it and had big emotions, but like started throwing things at you. Yes, actually, <laughs> she, not be okay. she, no, she picked something up to throw at me and she didn't do it, fortunately, because okay. I just gave her the death stare as she was picking it up. But I mean, come on. But that, but so, but the outcome was good. She didn't throw it, right? So I think if she had thrown it, then you you could start out by saying like, I know you're so mad. Exactly, basically what you said. But then say, you know, but it's not okay to throw things. You could have hurt me. Um, but what's really interesting when I dug into the research on all sorts of ways that parenting shapes kids' 
you know, values and behavior and stuff. Validating and acknowledging emotions came up again and again as really a beneficial parenting technique. And it's so hard because, yeah, my daughter, I have a seven-year-old, like she will explode at the tiniest little thing. Like if I don't like look at her the right way, she'll just like get so angry and it's so hard to tolerate that. Um, But what the research shows is the more that we let our kids have their feelings, talk about them, validate them, talk about our feelings, like just essentially the more that we have these conversations about emotions, the a the better able our kids are to manage their feelings over time, like the more practice they get, the better they are slowly, it's a very slow process at managing them, but also they get better at recognizing other people's feelings and and responding to them. So like if you think about what it takes for a kid to be generous or helpful, they have to essentially see somebody else who's in a situation that's not ideal and see like, oh, you know, my mom is really sad or she's really cold or she's really, you know, upset about something and then go out of their way to 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 make that person feel better. So they have to like be able to really be um, fluent with emotions in order to take that next step and be helpful or generous and, and kind and kind and kind. More momming today with Melinda Wenner Moyer right after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back on We're Momming today with Melinda Wenner-Moyer, author of How to Raise Kids Who Aren't A-Holes. And, um, okay, I'm reading again from your book because I read this, and this is a story that you share um, in the book about someone you know. And um, actually, maybe this is you. It says, my daughter is a meltdown machine. This just made me feel so good because I said, (laughs) oh, my life is somewhat normal now. She'll react maniacally. To things that don't seem like a big deal to anyone else, as an example. She now knows how to unstrap herself from her car seat, but she fluctuates between wanting me to open the car door for her and wanting to open it herself. Of course, she doesn't tell me which preference she has on a given day, and if I ask, she gets mad. So I'm left to make a a best guess, and God help me if I open the car door on a day when she doesn't want me to. God help us all. I mean, how do you manage something so insignificant like that, yet so significant to your child? It is really, really hard. Um, and and I think it helps sometimes to understand like where this behavior is coming from, from kids. If you think about being a little kid, everybody's always bossing you around. Everybody's telling you what to do. You don't have a ton of freedom. I mean, Oh, I get that all that- the time. All my daughter says to me, everyone tells me what to do all day. Stop bossing me around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and and I I think that's really hard for them. And so, to the extent that they can get control over something, and they can say, "This is how this thing has to be," and I'm going to, you know, demand this thing. And if I don't get it, I'm going to get really mad. Like they find these really, really crazy ways of trying to maintain control or some feeling of control. And that's that's and they like latch onto these tiny things. Like basically, my daughter I think realized that like one of the very few things she could seemingly have some control over was whether she got unstrapped from the car seat by herself or whether she asked me to do it. And so this became her way of having control over, (laughs) over her afternoon. And then if I, I, if I 
you know, made the wrong choice or I, I took that control away from her. It just made her explode. And so like, I think sometimes you have to try to put yourself in their shoes and think like, okay, you know, this really isn't about the car seat. There's something bigger here. This represents something to my kid that's really meaningful. And I might not ever understand it, but like, it really is meaningful. So like, what'd you not... do? Well, so when I make the wrong choice and she explodes and cries, I, I do kind of what you were doing with your, with your child the other day. Like I say, oh, you're so mad. You're clearly so frustrated that I unstrapped the car seat today and I didn't know what you wanted and I guessed wrong and I'm sorry. And then she, you know, she runs off and has a 20 minute long meltdown. And I just kind of let her have that. Sometimes I, I do set boundaries on like what that meltdown can entail. Like I will say you can, you can be as upset as you need to be. You can make as much noise as you want, but, but please like go outside and do it because it's hurting my ears. So <laughs> I will, cause it really does hurt my ears, but like you can, you can set boundaries on it. Like again, if they're throwing oh things, gosh. you can say you can't, you could can be angry, but you can't throw things. So it's like, there's a, there is, you need to distinguish between the feelings and then how they're, how they're handling them and what they do with them. What about punishments? Yeah. Punishments is, is a tricky topic because again, it depends on the kid and it depends on why they're misbehaving. I think a lot of parents, myself included, <laughs> um, when their kids misbehave, they they jump to the conclusion that like, oh my God, this kid's being a jerk. She's doing this on purpose. She's doing it to defy me. She wants to break the rules. Like she wants to make me mad. And so we immediately think we need to, you know, come down hard on them and, and have really sharp, strong consequences. But a lot of kids misbehave because they don't have the skills that we think they have. You know, we, we think like, well, my three-year-old should be able to sit through a 25 minute long dinner and not, you know, throw their food across the room, but actually for a three-year-old, that's asking a lot. And their brains, <laughs> their brains, their bodies aren't capable of doing some of the things that we think that they should be doing. I actually wrote uh, another newsletter recently about like table manners and why kids are so table terrible at, at table manners. And I talked to some um, like physical therapists and uh, occupational therapists who were like, kids do not like they're, they're, their stomach muscles don't have the capacity to sit upright in a, in a chair, especially like at a normal table for a very long okay. time. Like they're, they're like, can't do it. So the point being, I think we've got to sort of like keep in mind that sometimes we expect more of kids than they can actually here's, deliver. Here's my pushback because anytime my okay. parents or my in-laws are over, I hear the same thing. When you guys were little, you finished your dinner. If you didn't like what was made, you went to bed hungry. You sat at the table. I feel like, so I've tried that tough love, that hard stance with my kids. It doesn't work. But how come it worked for me, my brothers, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, and my husband? <laughs> I think they're probably Did our stomachs change like... in 30-something years? <laughs> no. I, well, so first of all, I think sometimes um, there's selective memory. <laughs> so I think, you know, I think probably you weren't perfectly behaved at the table when you were a kid. But for whatever reason, maybe you're parents remember those good bits more than they remember the hard bits. I think that could be part of it. I also think, you know, our culture has changed. Some of the expectations have, have, have relaxed a little bit and kids respond to that. Like if it was really super important for kids to sit still at the dinner table and it was something that every other kid was doing too. And they saw this all the time. I think maybe like they could, they could probably step up because it would be like a really a something that they felt like they had to do. Um, but I don't think kids, I don't think we were, I don't think we were perfect. You know what I will say on that though? 
I, uh, we went to visit my parents a couple of weeks ago in Maine and my parents are very like formal and manners matter so much to them. And so my kids are like a mess usually at dinner and they're like picking the peas up with their hands and they're like throwing things and they don't use napkins. And, and, you know, we say like, please use a napkin, but it, like, it's like, they don't hear it. But the day before we went to visit my parents, we, I sat them down and I said, look, Grammy and grandpa are so they, they really care about manners and they really care that you are polite at the dinner table. So if you can please just try your hardest to be polite at dinner, it would really mean a lot to me. And they like, they stepped it up. I, I mean, it was kind of amazing. I was like, I didn't think you had the capacity to do this, but like they were using their forks. They were using napkins. They were saying no, thank you. <laughs> and I was amazed that like having that conversation about expectations really made a difference. Wow. So, okay. So since you've been home, have they had table manners? Not really. No, (laughs) it's back to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. No, I mean, I feel like for every, you know, two steps forward I take and I'm proud of myself and I'm proud of them. You know, we take one big step back all the time. And my latest step back is I can't get my kids to stop fighting with each other, like hardcore Uh fighting, like cuts and scratches and I think I'm going to get in a car accident sometimes because they'll like throw stuff at each other in the car. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sibling rivalry is so hard. I mean, it, I will say it's so normal. Like your kids are not monsters for doing this. I've, I interviewed a bunch of researchers who study sibling conflict. Like there's actually like a field of research that is sibling conflict, which is fascinating. And they're like, this is so universal. It is, it, you know, so don't beat yourself up that like you're a bad parent because your kids are fighting. It's very, very normal. Um, but there, I mean, there is some really interesting research on what parents can do. Like what are the most constructive ways to respond to sibling conflict? They are a little labor intensive. <laughs> I will warn you, like the, the strategies that have been shown in, like there've been clinical trials on these, they are a little intense at first, but I can, if you want, I can explain like what, what Maybe they the shorthand version. Yeah. Okay. So essentially, like, instead of either ignoring your kids fighting or jumping in and being a referee, which both of those things are things that parents like to commonly do, like they kind of decide the outcome, like, okay, you know, this kid's wrong, that kid's right, like, I've solved the problem, you know, instead of doing those things, what you want to be doing is, like, again, acknowledging that your kids are upset, like saying, oh, my gosh, I'm hearing so many angry voices in here. And letting your and saying, okay, um, Let's take a minute to take some deep breaths. And then you actually let each kid tell their side of the story, essentially. And the reason you do this is because, like, you're letting the other kid hear the the kid that they're fighting with's perspective. Like, they, they are starting to um, – it helps them to – Uh, be able to take their sibling's perspective if they hear like, oh, wow, you know, my sister experienced that very differently than I did. And like, wow, that's so it helps to just have them each air their side. And then after that, you say like, well, let's see if we can figure out a compromise. Like what could be a way that we could resolve this Mm -hmm. that would that would be like more cooperative. And sometimes the kids are like, there is no way like she's just wrong. But I have found like I've used this multiple times and kids do like my kids did end up sometimes finding really great ways of, of resolving the conflict that weren't like one kid winning and one okay. kid losing. Um, conflict yeah. resolution. A more yeah, serious... You're essentially like a mediator. Yeah. A more serious topic. Um, how, how should we speak to our children about racism? Um, 
in the sense that they might be the target of it or might not even realize that people are different. Should, did you understand what I'm saying? You know, a lot of kids, especially young yeah. kids, don't they, they don't really know, know the difference between different nationalities. It's all the same. You know, I've actually tested my kids before. So what's different about so-and-so? And they'll come back with, like, the silliest thing. Like, oh, um, their shirt's red. And like, oh, okay, that's what's different. You know what I'm saying? So how should Mm -hmm. we bring up these conversations from a young age, but also when it is much more important when they're older? Yeah, Um, it's it's so hard. I mean, first of all, I'm white. It's very hard to talk about race when you're white. And research has shown this because we've been like socialized to really not talk about it. That's true. So these conversations, yeah, these conversations are hard, Um, but they are important because what research shows is that kids do see race. They do see skin color. Like even if they live in a predominantly white community, they see it on TV. They see it, you know, around them when they, when they're not in their very white community. Um, And they also see like the way that the, the racial hierarchy plays out in society. Like they do notice that, you know, only one president has been black and that a lot of people who have wealth and power and fame are white, but that's not quite as true for people of color. And they notice these hierarchies and they, they will, they will try to come to some kind of conclusion about why that hierarchy exists. And the simplest conclusion, if kids don't know about racism is that, well, white people are just like better and smarter. And obviously that's, not the case. And, but we as parents and, um, you know, grandparents and teachers need to explain that racism exists because it helps, it helps kids understand why that hierarchy exists. And it helps to push against the idea that, well, the hierarchy exists because white people are just better. So how you do it, it's so hard. Um, I mean, I find like my kids will, will sometimes, um, allude well like let's say we're watching a show or they're watching a show sometimes and I will notice for instance that like all of the heroes in this particular show are white or maybe like the bad guy has dark skin and sometimes I will just like pause the show and say hey that's that's interesting let's let's talk about this did you notice that like all of these heroes are white and you know what do you what do you think about that and like try to start talking about race and racism just through the way the like the media sends them messages um, and sometimes kids just like point blank ask me questions um, about race. And, you know, I try to use those as opportunities to like get into the subject, but it's, it's hard. It's, and actually research shows that like white parents, even when their kids ask them about race, they, they tend to change the subject. They tend to avoid it because they don't know what to say. And I totally get that. Um, but we should be using those opportunities when they arise and like. Did your research <laughs> also include how, um, how non-white people teach their kids about race? Yeah. So it's they have very different conversations. So with parents of color, having a conversation about race and racism often isn't a choice. Like it's, they have to, they have, to, their kids are experiencing it. Like their kids might be called names at school or something might happen. And so, so the parents have to have these conversations regularly. Um, and they also have to prepare their kids, you know, before they experience racism, like here's how you act around um, police officers and here's how you should do this and here's how you should behave. So the conversations they're having are very different. They're Mm -hmm. often, you know, um, to some degree, like preparing their kids for racism and and how to respond to it. But it's also, they have a lot of conversations about um, like racial and ethnic pride and, you know, who, who were their ancestors and here's why you should be proud of them. And that those conversations, um, are really important for, for developing self-esteem and, but yes, very 
different conversations and and they happen by necessity. And as we wrap this up, Melinda, in the course of the past year that you were writing and researching this book, do you feel like it, it, it worked for you personally? Like, are, are your kids kind kids at this point? I mean, did, did it all pay off? Well, so not always. Um, I'm going to be perfectly honest. Like, my kids are not perfectly behaved in any way. But the way I thought of the book was less how to raise kids who are perfectly behaved, but more how to raise kids who grow up to be kind, compassionate, good people. Because I think kids have to make mistakes in order to learn from them. They It takes a long time for like, you know, cultural um, expectations to really seep in and for kids to get it. And, and their brains have to develop. Like they do not have the capacity for rational thinking and for impulse control. It doesn't fully develop till kids are 25. So, which is crazy. Wow. Um, so, but yes, I have actually... It took a while. Um, and I actually found, even after I learned the strategies that I learned, it took me a while to start parenting differently because parenting is so reactive. Like, you know, it's so, it's not always a rational thing. And it took me a while to start actually changing the way I parented. But yes, I, I have seen changes in my kids. I, I have, but I think it's going to be a long a long road too, you know. It's yeah, and not, I think you just something. you just said it, this is these strategies are difficult for parents. But for me personally, because I've been looking into this a lot, just to help me raise better children, yeah. um, it, it requires a lot of thought, a lot of patience on the parents' part, and a lot of like thinking through different scenarios. So I'm like, okay, how am I going to react to this? Like, <laughs> what's my best yep. game plan? When sometimes you just want to, you know just lock them out. <laughs> Have an overreaction. And, you know? Absolutely. And you and I feel like we all are going to make those mistakes too and like overreact and scream at our kids and that's okay too and especially if we like go back to them and say I'm sorry I did that. You know, I I should have handled that better. Like that's teaching kids too that we all make mistakes but we can learn from them and we can do better. Melinda, so great catching up with you. Thank you so much, Lauren. This is really fun. Good luck on the on the book and um you know, as you try to have perfect children in your own life, maybe you need to have you like have your parents come over more to keep up with all those manners. I know. I think maybe so. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.